You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader, hosting this week of the News and Observer. And with me are Will Doran, Craig Jarvis, Colin Campbell, and for the very first time joining us, uh, Matthew Adams, who's going to be with us for the summer, uh, joining us uh, from uh, the great state of Texas, uh, where he was uh, previously worked at uh, the Houston Chronicle in an internship there. Uh, he'll be joining us for a, a summer internship. So welcome, welcome, uh, Matthew, and uh, we'll uh, have you on many more of these, uh, unless you're really bad, and then we'll, you know, probably won't. <laughs> let's but, hope. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's. We're going to talk about redistricting. Of course, there's a big Supreme Court decision on redistricting, followed by sort of a special session. Uh, we're going to talk about guns and the gun bill that's uh, moved through the House. Uh, we'll talk about vote hacking. And, of course, we'll talk about the state budget and the status on budget negotiations. Uh, But let's start with redistricting. Uh, Colin, uh, you've covered some of this. The Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, upheld a lower court's decision that 28 legislative districts, these are state, House, and Senate uh, districts, uh, are unconstitutional racial gerrymanders uh, that were designed in 2011 by the Republican-led legislature. Um, But they also uh, shot down the lower court's decision to make the legislature redraw these immediately and have a 2017 special election. Uh, Now it's headed back to those same lower court judges, a three-judge panel of federal judges, to uh, decide whether uh, we're going to have another uh, special election or whether we wait until the 2018 uh, regular elections. Uh, So uh, what's uh, what's been the response in the legislature to this? So the legislature has uh, basically come to the conclusion, yes, they, they are going to have to redraw the lines. Um, that's what the Supreme Court says. So there's really not a appeal alternative for them at this point to uh, try to avoid uh, having to get new legislative districts by the time we have our next election. The only question then, as you've mentioned, is whether it's going to be 2017 uh, that they rush one through later this year or 2018. Now, the lower court ruled last summer uh, in favor of doing a 2017 election, but then that was almost a year ago. Uh, the timeline on that was, I think, to redraw the lines by mid-March. Mid-March is uh, long ago come and gone, uh, and then have a special election in the fall. So it's questionable as to whether they would try to still do a, a special election or just say, hey, it's too late now. Uh, let's aim for, for 2018, um, which is what Republicans are hoping to see happen. They believe uh, that it would be in some way unconstitutional to essentially invalidate the results of the 2016 elections, uh, cut everyone's term short for one year, and then reelect or elect uh, lawmakers for simply a one-year term before they have to stand up for election again. Uh, so certainly would be a very uh, complicated uh, process of a, almost a never-ending election cycle uh, if we do have an election this year and then an election again next year. Uh, but for now, because there's no deadline on actually redrawing the maps, uh, the legislature's really taken no action, at least not in public. Uh, there's some talk that there may have been some uh, map work being done behind the scenes in anticipation of this process. Uh, but as far as having any sort of formal um, movement towards that, nothing's happened, uh, which is why the governor 
jumped in this week and tried to call a special session uh, that would run at the same time as the current session. Uh, this is sort of a, a funky parliamentary thing uh, where the legislature is already in session. They will be in session until they pass a budget, which uh, could be within the next month. It could be longer than that. Um, and during that time, they can take up any sort of bills they want. Um, but the governor called a, a special session that would run at the same time. He wanted to start it at 2 p.m. Uh, Thursday, have it run for up to two weeks. Has uh, this ever been done where one session runs at the same time as the other? I'm picturing like having to jump from one place to the other, say the Pledge of Allegiance twice. Uh, yeah, it's has all, this ever been done before, and how very, does it work? Yeah, it's all very complicated, um, and I, I think may have been done at some point in the past. Um, but it may have been a situation where there was already one special session with a particular topic and they needed to have another special session. If you recall, back in December, uh, they had a special session for Hurricane Matthew, adjourned that session, and immediately started a new session about three hours later, which was a session where they uh, changed a lot of the powers and authorities of the governor ahead of uh, Governor Roy Cooper taking office. Uh, but those were never held at the same time. Uh, it is unusual, and I think uh, a couple of people were saying that it's unprecedented for the governor to call a special session while the regular scheduled session uh, is still going on. That was, I think, a, a claim made by uh, Phil Berger's chief of staff, Jim Blaine, on Twitter the other day. Uh, and that, as far as we know, appears to be the case. Um, so it is, is sort of an unusual move uh, by the governor, one that was very quickly shot down uh, in the legislature. Um, they were scheduled to come in at 2 for the special session. The calendar had been issued, and then during their regular session on Thursday morning, uh, both the House and the Senate, a, a key Republican in each chamber, uh, made the motion that they believed uh, there was a sort of a constitutional point of order was, I think, the, the maneuver they used uh, to strike out the uh, special session, basically saying they didn't think he has the, the governor has the constitutional power to call a special session because the Constitution says uh, it has to be what's referred to as extraordinary circumstances. The governor can call the legislature into session um, outside of their, their normally scheduled sessions, and that they have to disc, uh, seek advice from the Council of State, which is the 10 or so uh, statewide elected officials that meet about once a month. Um, they said, claimed that Cooper had not done that. Uh, we went and uh, got the paper trail to see exactly how this went down. Uh, he did, in fact, seek advice from the Council of State members, but the timing was a little unusual. Um, the call for the special session, or the announcement of the call for the special session, was made at about 3.30 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon um, with the idea that it would be held the next day. The proclamation went out, I think, shortly before 6 p.m. that day. And between that time, between 3.30 and about 5.45, um, Cooper's chief of staff sent an email to all council of state members seeking advice. The email went out a few minutes after the announcement that they were going to call a special session. So obviously Cooper had made up his mind by that point, um, and the council of state members were given a couple hours to reply. A couple, as you might expect, some of the Republicans replied that they didn't think there needed to be a special session. Uh, there weren't uh, many replies from the Democrats that we were able to see in the records we got, uh, except for the attorney general Josh Stein basically replying to say, "I got your email," um, and not really offering advice one way or another to the governor on the issue. Uh, so that was sort of their big sticking points. Uh, the Republicans ruled in favor of that. In the House, it was a vote more or less on party lines. Uh, the Senate's rules don't necessarily uh, allow for a vote. It, it, the appeal goes to the rules chairman, and in this case, obviously, Bill Rabin, the Republican rules chairman, uh, backed the fellow Republicans in saying that the session was unconstitutional. And so that was that. There was uh, no action at 2 p.m., and um, 
the governor obviously criticized it, but he took no further action to sort of force them back into session. What did the governor say about why this was needed? It seems like it might be a little premature if we don't have an actual ruling from the court to say uh, you have to do this by a certain deadline, right? So what did he say yeah, about His argument is, you know, they, we have a firm ruling from the Supreme Court. These districts in which these lawmakers were elected are unconstitutional districts, and he feels like uh, under state law, they, they should have, I think, about 14 days to do it. And he cited a couple of sort of legal precedents that indicated that uh, sort of the clock starts ticking with the ruling. Um, now, there's still some legal stuff that needs to be done. And this was something Senate leader Phil Berger pointed out to reporters uh, that he spoke to yesterday, uh, was that um, the ruling, of course, doesn't have a deadline. It goes back to the lower court. And the, there could be some time uh, issues there where they don't really have a deadline to rule there is a request from the people who sued to challenge the districts in the first place uh, to seek an expedited review from the lower court. I think that is pending. Uh, my understanding is that the um, lawyers for the legislative leaders have a couple more days to file some paperwork regarding that particular motion in court. So we should get some action in the next couple weeks uh, on this. Uh, but there's still a lot of stuff pending, and that's sort of what Berger and, and other Republican legislators are citing is saying, hey, we don't, we don't have our marching orders yet, so it would be premature for us to suddenly jump in here and start redrawing the districts, even though we know we're going to have to eventually. Okay. Well, as long as we're talking about elections, uh, Will, let's talk about the uh, last election. Uh, and uh, what did we find out uh, this week uh, about what happened in the last election when we were all paying attention to uh, the never-ending uh, uh, fight between McCrory and Cooper that uh, went for about a month after uh, Election Day. Yeah, well, this all started with the wonderfully named uh, reality winner, who is a person, not a title, um, who was it's arrested. not the apprentice champion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, this person was arrested for allegedly leaking some classified documents about um, Russian attempts to uh, literally hack the 2016 elections that went a lot further than anything that's ever been publicly released before. We all knew that, you know, the Russians had tried to influence it using, you know, armies of fake accounts on social media and publishing, you know, fake news stories, things like that. Um, but uh, this was kind of an explosive allegation that the NSA believes the Russian government actually hacked into the software of this uh, company that provides the software for a lot of electronic voting systems around the country, including 21 counties here in North Carolina. Uh, the biggest of those is Durham, which, as loyal listeners will remember, had a lot of issues on Election Day. Um, and had to actually go in and, you know, get some emergency appeals done and ended up being the subject of a recount. Um, and so now uh, this report came out and said, you know, oh, Durham is tied to this firm that was hacked by the Russians. The State Board of Elections says that, wait, 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 just a second, um, the software that was hacked wasn't related to the software malfunctions that Durham had that caused their delays and they don't think that any, uh, any of the vote count was actually tampered with in Durham. Uh, that being said, there is still an active investigation ongoing um, into the exact extent of this hacking. Um, basically, the, uh, the software that was uh, infiltrated by the, the Russians or uh, whatever foreign party it was um, was about uh, voter registration. 
And uh, according to this uh, now out there NSA classified report, the Russians had basically taken this to try and get uh, uh, get email addresses that made them look as if they were legitimate people. Then they were spamming uh, people who were involved with local boards of elections uh, with uh, malicious emails to try and get their uh, login credentials so that they could hack into uh, you know systems and actually change some votes. It's it's unclear if that actually happened. If they actually were successful in it ever changing even a single vote um or if they even tried to do that anywhere in north carolina um, that's part of the investigation that's going on so right now um, we know that there was some sort of hack and interference what we don't know is if it uh you know if it changed anything okay all right well uh let's let's go into the budget and talk a little bit about the budget will why don't you start us off so uh you wrote a little bit about a uh claim that uh Representative David Lewis made, who's the rules chairman, uh, that if the House budget passes, uh, it'll completely wipe out the waiting list that exists right now for subsidized uh, pre-kindergarten, subsidized preschool. Uh, So did that turn out to be true or not so much? It is true. Um, Lewis was right, and it was actually uh, interesting here. We've got a uh, kind of a moment of bipartisan agreement here. Um, This is also something that I've been tracking on our Coupo meter. Um, Roy Cooper, when he was running for governor, promised that he would expand the NC Pre-K program, and the uh, the budget that he put out uh, earlier this spring actually has the exact same Pre-K plan as the uh, Republican-approved House budget. Um, and I don't know if that's the case on really much else, if anything else, of note that uh, that Cooper put in his budget. But this is definitely one area where it seems like everyone agrees. Um, basically, it's going to cost the state around. $18 million over the next two years to create about 5,000 new seats in pre-K classes. Um, and if they combine that with another $18 million in federal grants uh, that we get, then uh, budget officials agree that should be enough so that uh, no more kids get turned away from pre-K program. Um, like I said, there's there were about 5,000 kids last year that got turned away. And this is a program that serves military families, uh kind of middle class and low income families there there are certain you know income restrictions and then also serves kids with uh, special needs you know like if they're disabled or uh, don't speak English at home things like that um, so pretty diverse group of uh, you know sectors of the population this is going to help and that probably makes it a little bit more politically feasible than a lot of other things um, but yeah that's the uh, the long and short of pre-k it looks like in a few years uh there either won't be a waiting list or, you know, can't predict the future, obviously, if thousands more kids are signing up for pre-K, there, you know, there might be a waiting list. But and it's dependent on federal grants, too, right? So it could, yeah, could depend exactly. a little bit on what happens at the federal level. Exactly. Well, and so far, everyone agrees, the, the House, the Senate, and the governor all agree that they should use exactly $18.2 million in federal grants from something called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, um, which is the same block grant that we get a lot of kind of uh, you know, social safety net programs from. Um, so, and that, that'll that be enough to cut about half of the wait list. Um, and like I said, that has unanimous agreement everywhere. So it looks like that's definitely going to pass. The The main thing that's going to be up for negotiation in the when the House and the Senate sit down is whether or not to match those grants and spend the extra $18 million of state funds to totally get rid of the wait list. The House wants to do it. Uh, the Senate doesn't. So... Okay, 
Uh, Colin, where do uh, budget negotiations stand right now? Yeah, so that's um, sort of where we're at right now with budget is that we are in the first week of negotiations. Uh, so everything's really going on behind closed doors now, as it always does. Uh, really not a good sense for sort of how much progress has been made and, and how much uh, still to be made uh, at this point. Uh, I did see some uh, comments from a few of the chief uh, budget writers uh, saying that they've been dealing with you know upwards of 12-hour days uh, in rooms with their Senate and House counterparts uh, to negotiate the, the details of the budget. Uh, so all that's uh, coming along. It seems fairly promising that they're going to get done somewhat soon. The, the line from uh, House Speaker Tim Moore as of, I think, late last week was that they're on track to get it done in a couple weeks uh, with the idea of not having to go well into the summer that by the June 30th deadline at the end of this fiscal year, uh, they should have something hopefully back from the governor, um, uh, if not signed by the governor, uh, and then we wouldn't have to be having another long, hot summer in Raleigh as we did two years ago in the budget cycle. And the key difference, I think, is it's worth noting in this uh, budget cycle is that uh, years past, there's been dis- uh, disagreement over how much to spend. The Senate... Uh, wanted a more austere budget uh, several cycles ago. The House wanted to spend a little bit more. Of course, they end up in the middle, uh, but it took them a long time to get to the middle. And in fact, in 2015, uh, it took them till mid-August to get to the middle before they could even start negotiating, okay, which which programs do we spend money on and which ones do we not spend money on? Uh, this year, they decided before they even passed a budget that $22.9 billion was going to be the total number. It's about a 2.5% spending increase, and it's about half the spending increase that the governor wants. Um, but that means that uh, what the House and the Senator are going back and forth on is just exactly how to spend that money. Not necessarily do they spend it, do they not, but how big will the tax cuts be? How big will the teacher and state employee raises be? What programs uh, get the extra boost? What don't? Um, and that's uh, going on, as I say, behind closed doors. And uh, we should get a sense in the next week or so um, whether they're still on target or, or whether we're looking at going into July. Right. And so uh, what are the big similarities that uh, that you see that, that could be uh, points of agreement that are is there anything there's a, that's essentially a done deal? Yeah, because the House and Senate are. So we, I went through back through the, both the House and Senate budgets just to see. You know, obviously, the the big stuff, the um, teacher raises, uh, the tax cuts, uh, those they've got to work out in negotiations. But there are a lot of programs that uh, and provisions that are in both budgets now that uh, are pretty much you can gar- be guaranteed that they'll probably be in the final version if they're in both the House and Senate. Of course, anything can happen. There may be some. Uh, spending items that weren't in either original budget and suddenly make a magical appearance in the final budget, which has happened in years past. But uh, we can feel fairly confident that we're going to see a number of things in there, including uh, private school vouchers known as opportunity scholarships. Uh, That was something that was uh, set out in a previous budget, uh, previous law that set out how much they were going to spend. So they're increasing the funding on that uh, to the chagrin of the Democrats uh, who have sought to take that out of the budget. But that uh, is currently in both the House and Senate plans to uh, step up the funding for that program. Uh, there's also some interesting details in there. There's um, a, a program for preschoolers. Uh, it's called Dolly Parton's uh, Imagination Library. And uh, the country singer was not somebody I was expecting to run across uh, in budget documents. Uh, but there she was. Uh, she's got this program uh, that uh, serves, I think, about a million uh, kids across several countries uh, through these different partnerships with government agencies and with uh, nonprofits that sends every kid Uh, a book in the mail every single month, which is a pretty cool thing. Uh, Both the House and Senate want to expand that program to be available to more families here in North Carolina. Some of the details are uh, not in a whole lot of uh, 
specificity in the budget, um, but the main gist of it is the uh, Senate wants to spend a couple million dollars to make it statewide. The House has a slightly more minor uh, increase in funding for that program, but uh, either way, Dolly Pardon gets an expansion in, in North Carolina. Uh, there's also an item in there that I think uh, may be of interest to any uh, Older listeners or listeners who are eventually going to be older, um, if you're a senior citizen under a budget provision in both budgets, you can go audit any uh, community college or uh, public university class in North Carolina for free uh, as long as it's not um, an overbooked class and the professor doesn't want you there, uh, which is a pretty cool thing if you're you know, in retirement and uh, want to take advantage of uh, what's going on at your, your local community college or university. You wouldn't get course credit, but if you're you know, 65 or older, you're probably just looking to uh, learn some new information and, and delve into an interesting topic. So that's a cool thing that's in, in both budgets. Uh, and then on a more controversial level, uh, there's this provision about uh, a federal lawsuit. This is the Waters of the United States lawsuit where uh, a number of states, including North Carolina, had sued the EPA over some uh, clean water rules that were implemented during the Obama administration. Uh, when Cooper took over and Josh Stein as the attorney general, both Democrats, they kind of quietly pulled North Carolina out of this lawsuit. So other states are still in it. Um, it's unclear where the lawsuit will go because President Trump uh, has said he's going to repeal this rule, but hasn't actually done so yet. Republicans uh, want North Carolina back in the lawsuit. So both the House and the Senate budgets now have uh, money for attorneys. It's a different amount in different budgets uh, to go to the Agriculture Commissioner, Steve Troxler, who's a fellow Republican, uh, to rejoin the lawsuit and uh, get us back um, as a, a player in that whole process. Uh, so that's something where we don't know how, mu how much money may go to the lawyers for that, but uh, it's pretty clear that um, Troxler is going to get some money for lawyers out of this budget. I thought it was interesting that uh, a footnote to the week's budget news, because I don't think it was probably worth more than a footnote, but uh, uh, the governor had a press conference on Monday, I think it was, to push for his his version of the budget. I guess the message is basically I would like I would like the House and the Senate to work harder to come around to what I want, and uh, which was basically stop giving tax breaks to the corporations and to the wealthy, spend more uh, on people, investment yeah, by spending more money on education and various programs. Uh, I don't know what that accomplishes, but other than continues to set this stage for four years of uh, really confrontation with the governor and the uh, and the legislative leaders. What was the legislative leaders' reaction to that? Oh, I think they said something like, "Well, we're glad to uh, you know work with him." I, they th I forget now the wording. They they threw in a few little jabs as they always do, but we're you know we're glad he's coming around to thinking the way we are about you know increasing teacher pay and such. Um, but you know in the meantime. Don't bother us. I don't think they open it. They, I don't They're not going to invite him into their closed door meetings. Over to the um, to the meetings. Uh, Although yeah. that was kind of his point was he said I I would like to see not only really legislative leaders but Republican rank and file members come around and tell their leaders that this is the time we've got more we've got the money to do it. Let's invest. Otherwise, we're not going to accomplish all these great long range things that make the state so great. Are there Democrats involved in budget negotiations? Uh, Colin? Technically speaking, yes. Uh, so they named the conference committees, which are sort of the official 
uh, groups of negotiators from each side um, that will be negotiating the budget. And it's a really long list. It includes a lot of the budget chairs from uh, each uh, chamber on a variety of different subject areas. Uh, but it does include about, I think, four or five uh, Democrats on the House side. No Democrats on the Senate side were named. Um, and I, someone was pointing out to me that that's in part because uh, the Democrats named on the House side actually voted for the budget, uh, whereas, of course, in the Senate, it was a party-line vote. No Democrats supported the Senate budget. Uh, but in all practicality, will those people have a seat at the table? Past history says no. Um, the last couple of budget cycles, I've talked to the Democrats who show up on that list, uh, and they're not really invited to any meetings. Um, it's, it's a much smaller group than the list of official conferees uh, that actually negotiate stuff behind closed doors. Typically how it works is that you start out with the subject area chairs, so the uh, budget writers for health and human services or education, for example, will meet, meet with their counterparts from the other chamber. Uh, they'll work out their differences, but if there are things they can't agree on, then that gets kicked up to the full appropriations chairs who oversee everything, and they'll meet with their counterparts in the other chambers. And if they can't agree, then it goes to what's referred to as the corner offices. It, uh, Phil Berger and Tim Moore will have to sit down face-to-face and they'll have to work out the deal on these issues that their underlings can't agree to. Uh, and that's generally how this goes down. So when, we're, when we see the corner offices starting to uh, shuttle back and forth, uh, that's when you know we're getting close to a budget deal. So, uh, Matthew, you've been watching the budget a little bit because you've been uh, uh, preparing to write a story about the uh, uh, teaching fellows uh, possibly being revived. And, and Colin mentioned in his story that that is in both budgets, a version of that. So um, what have you heard so far about why lawmakers would like to um, bring back that program? First, I should say it's a, a scholarship program uh, for pr- prospective teachers. What do, uh, what do people who want to bring that back have to say about it? Yeah, so that, that seems to be one of the things in the budget in particular that's being brought up that seems to be a consensus that like we need this brought back. Um, talking with um, people at like NC State and Appalachian State, I learned that's the cr- correct good pronunciation job. That's good. of that. Yeah, that's very good. Um, you know, they you know they're very much in favor of this. You know, there are concerns that they have. One of the things that they don't particularly like is that um, the board would select five public and private universities that would be quote unquote you know the overseers for the teaching fellows and you know NC State and Appalachian State you know they feel comfortable about that. But there is some concern about, well, you are limiting this to, you know, certain people. And that's something that in the future that they want to expand. But with the teacher shortage right now, you know, one of the things that was pointed out was um, this up this last school year, there was over 400, you know, teacher vacancies in the central North Carolina area, and they were saying, you know, one of the deans at the school said that, you know, the Triangle area is one of the easiest places to fill teacher jobs, and so the fact that you couldn't even fill jobs there creates an issue in other parts of the state that have a harder time hiring. Right. It's going to be even harder in Rocky Mount or uh, Wilson or somewhere down at the coast. Um, So uh, who would be eligible? What kind of uh, uh, teaching would be eligible for this? So right now, the focus of the teachers for this would be in STEM and special education. Um, Some have said, you know, they would like for the middle school kind of teachers to be included in this, but they said, you know, STEM and special education are probably the two areas that have been hit the hardest by um, teacher vacancies and whatnot. So, you know, they said that's for sure the right step, but 
going forward, you know, middle school and some of the elementary levels need to be addressed. So, Matthew, you've had a couple weeks in North Carolina now. So what are your first impressions of uh, North Carolina politics? How are they different from from Texas politics or other uh, places you've been? I know you're, you're a Texas native. Right? Yeah, I'm very much a Texas native. Uh, it, it's similar in some ways. Um, I think, you know, the, the I think where I was having to get caught up was the whole special session talk because in Texas right now, well, the session ended May 29th and well, Governor Greg Abbott's already called them back for a special session starting July 18th. And so to have this from Governor Cooper to say, hey, we're going to have a special session in the middle of session. I think that threw all of us, not just the uh, not just the ones. Who oh, it, it, it definitely <laughs> seemed like it. Um, but yeah, it, you know, some of the some of the politics are very, very similar to Texas. So that's not a huge surprise. I will say and I will confess and I'm sure I will start controversy barbecue here very different only different you don't have an opinion about uh whether it's good Um, or bad or um well as uh my texas bias would say texas barbecue is still better but i think i'm gonna have to grow to like north carolina barbecue at some point if i want to stay in this state that's the right answer uh where have you gone so far uh so i have been uh i made one stop at clyde cooper's already um, and so now I've got to venture out and try to make uh, some other stops. Okay. And I think uh, you uh, you stopped at Krispy Kreme and did some of the I, other I did stop at so, Krispy yeah. Kreme, and I've uh, been to uh, – there's this uh, Italian place by the NC State campus, Amadeo's, I think it's called. Very good place. A lot of cool NC State memorabilia. So definitely enjoy kind of looking around there. So uh, what's going on in Texas right now? Not that I expect you to be uh, up to the minute on it, but – uh, aren't they considering a version of the uh, the bathroom bill? Uh, they, something very similar to HB two. Yeah, they are considering um, something along those lines. You know, that was one of the reasons for the special session was there were some state agencies that um, under the sunset bill in Texas that the legislature looks at, and one of the things you know there were some medical advisory boards that Governor Abbott said you know. You kind of have to keep these open if we're going to have, you know, medical things and stuff in Texas. Um, But one of the things was, well, since Abbott really hasn't weighed in on the whole transgender bathroom issue, was that going to be brought up in the special session? And finally, within his announcement of the 20 items, well, that came up. And so some have speculated that, well, Dan Patrick had some influence in getting that. He's the lieutenant governor there. Correct. Yeah, okay. And, you know, there was some, inf- you know, there was some saying that, oh, well, he influenced that decision, you know, that he made some late night phone calls. Whether that's true or not, who knows. But, you know, with Dan Patrick, you know, that's never, you know, that's something that's always in consideration. All right. Well, after the little foray into Texas politics, uh, let's talk about uh, gun laws, um, probably somewhat appropriately. Uh, and it, what it the- is appropriate because it, re- it was one of many issues that uh, the aptly named Dallas Woodhouse, when he was with Americans for Prosperity, uh, trotted out to the – he brought quite a few Texas representatives into town to push different issues in holding Texas up as some uh, a state that was far ahead of us on a number of 
uh, of those issues. Well, and so now we have kind of an exchange program because we send uh, <laughs> we send the Lieutenant Governor Forrest uh, over to Texas to promote uh, HB2 style bills and That's say right. that the economic impact here has really states. not been anything to worry about. So. Right, exactly. But speaking of guns, yes, yeah. with that, and I think we talked about it last uh, Domecast, but uh, the uh, bill that would really, really roll back the need for um, concealed carry permits concealed handgun permits, uh, actually cleared the House. I didn't think that would happen. Uh, and uh, there was quite a contentious week leading up to that. There was uh, 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 Grassroots North Carolina, which is the main gun rights advocacy group here, um, kind of reached into their bag of, uh, some people might call it dirty tricks, and said, you know, we don't have the money to spend on this. This is all, you know, what they usually say. That's Michael Bloomberg out-of-state money. It's not really grassroots efforts to, that that it's fighting for the gun uh, safety battle. But anyway, they're um, they're saying that. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. They're <laughs> sending out emails. Yeah, they sent like out. I'm had sorry. They sent the, out. Uh, they sent out uh, emails to. They said 120,000 people, gun-owning voters, uh, singling out five lobbyists who represent from two different firms who represent uh, one of those national gun safety groups um, and also a, a statewide gun safety group. And uh, But you know, for the men, the two men, they published their home addresses. The rest of them, they also published contact information, phone numbers, and emails saying, well, you know, if you, have a, if you think like we do, you might want to give these people a call and uh, convince them otherwise. And it's, it, you know, some people felt that went over the line. It's something that they've done before. With this particular group, and uh, it was kind of a kind of a nasty uh, setup. But uh, that, that, did that uh, cause any lawmakers who are often, you know, friends with lobbyists or uh, at least friendly with them to uh, rethink? Or, or I don't know. What we ended up seeing in the final vote was eight Republicans who voted with all the Democrats uh, uh, against the bill, uh, which wasn't enough. But it was enough to prevent a uh, uh, veto override if that comes back around. That's assuming this thing has a life in the Senate, which we really don't know. In the past, it's uh, gun bills have kind of died in the Senate, um, and then Cooper. I think we can count on him to uh, to uh, veto that bill if it if it comes to him. And the House did not have enough votes to there were not uh, enough override votes. a Cooper veto if that no, should come. They had votes two days in a row, as they were required to have uh, consecutive votes, and uh, in neither of those cases uh, would would the governor of you know, uh, would a veto have not been uh, overridden? All right. Well, or sustained. Yeah, veto sustained. Well, if if that's it, I think we're uh, done, and we'll take a little break and come back to talk about the headliner of the week. Please stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. Welcome back to Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide who is the most influential or interesting person, place, or thing in today's, in this week's news. Uh, Will Doran, you're up first. Who's your Headliner of the Week? 
Well, this is probably not too much of a shock, but uh, I'll go with uh, Senator Richard Burr, who has been at the center of the national news universe recently uh, for his handling of the uh, testimony that former FBI Director James Comey gave, and also uh, before him, some of our assorted admirals and generals and spy leaders and people like that. And, uh, you know, for the better part of this week, uh, he's kind of been at the center of everything, and uh, huge national platform for him. So, Richard Burr. All right. Senator Richard Burr, who uh, has been much in demand for the national news media lately. They even hounded him to an ATM where he uh, took some questions and then uh, rushed off and apparently forgot his check card in the machine. Uh, some reporters found it, and I, I think it made its way back to him. Uh, so that gives you a sense of uh, how much in demand he is. Senator Richard Burr in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Craig, who's your Craig Jarvis? Who's your headliner of the week? Well, uh, it seems there's a group, a demographic group known as millennials, and uh, they have their own sets of goals and aspirations. And well, it turns out that uh, a has anyone uh, ever mocked or criticized? The oh, I don't generation? know. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, that's not what I'm trying to do here. But uh, apparently, they range all the way up to 45 years old because the uh, there's been a new. It's called the North Carolina Future Caucus. Uh, which has been formed to represent uh, the interests of those younger than 45. So that, that the caucus would be my uh, would be my um, by my pick. They had a press conference today with uh, Senator Jay Chaudhry of Raleigh. I mean, not today, earlier this week, kicking things off. Okay, the NC Future Caucus. Uh, it's kind of a bold name. I mean, there, there is a younger generation than millennials that, that, that could be, I guess, take stake a claim to the future. But I guess they're not old enough to join caucuses. So, parties. yes, right. That's a good. That's true. Uh, okay, the North Carolina Future Caucus uh, of uh, millennials and people in Gen X who, uh, I guess, support millennials and uh, think that they're important uh, to pay attention to. Uh, in the hat for headliner of the week, uh, Colin Campbell. And who's your headliner of the week? I am going with somebody who uh, doesn't normally get to do anything that makes him a headliner of the week uh, because his role is normally ceremonial, but not this week, and that's Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. Uh, Forrest, as part of being the lieutenant governor, gets to be president of the Senate, uh, but that means basically he presides over sessions, doesn't really get to vote, doesn't really get to like set the agenda or anything like that. Uh, but this week he actually had a more powerful role, so when uh, on Thursday – there was the governor's call for a special session on redistricting, and the legislative leaders uh, very clearly did not want to do that uh, and ruled his uh, call for a special session to be unconstitutional. Uh, under the Senate rules, it ended up being Lieutenant Governor Forrest who ruled uh, did the first ruling on the rule regarding the special session. There's a lot of uh, tongue-twisting words there. Um, but uh, so when Senator Ralph Heiss uh, put this up for a question, Forrest determined that, yes, he believed the special session call to be unconstitutional. That thing got appealed to the rules chair. And then uh, Forrest also took some flack from the Democrats for uh, uh, cutting them off and preventing them from uh, debating the issue uh, further and uh, then pushing the debate onto the, the next bill on the calendar. So a, a unusually prominent role for the lieutenant governor this week, so I think he uh, merits headline of the week. All right. Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Senator Richard Burr and the North Carolina Future Caucus. Matthew Adams, your first headliner of the week. Who's your headliner of the week? 
Well, I was gonna go with the millennials here, uh, but oh, I. Oh, he stole your headliner of the week. Sorry. It's it's all good. Um, I think with all the redistricting stuff, though, um, you know, Reverend Barber was back in the news again this week when he was on the Daily Show, and he and he managed to bring that up. But um, several members of the um, Black Caucus here in North Carolina, well, they held a presser this week, and they were demanding for another uh, push for the legislative redistricting of the map. So uh, I think I'll have to go with them uh, this week, but uh, definitely millennials still want to stick with them. Nice rebound. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the Legislative Black Caucus in the hat for headliner of the week. Two caucuses here, Uh, and uh, along with Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest and Senator Richard Burr. Uh, very tempted to go with the uh, future caucus. I'm, I think I'm technically borderline a millennial, depending on which uh, summary you look at of the years. Uh, but I think I have to go with Senator Burr this week because he's played such a big role uh, and uh, was sort of the ringmaster of the uh, Comey hearings that everyone in D.C. was uh, so captivated by, and um, probably a lot of people outside D.C. less so. Uh, but certainly uh, uh, we were. so. We'll go with Senator Richard Burr uh, as our headliner of the week this week. And that does it for Domecast. Uh, For Matthew Adams, Will Doran, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, Thanks a lot. Catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.